Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Hey, you can be seated. Good morning. Thank you, team. Uh, And welcome again to Horizon West Church. If you've slipped in since the earlier greeting, we are so glad that you're here. Um, And also just want to repeat or reiterate, uh, if you have young children, um, maybe in the 4 to 12 range or something like that, some of the content today may be something you don't want them to be exposed to. Um, And so just be aware that we do have kids programming if that is your preference, but you are not mandated to that. Um, I just know I don't want my kids in the room. And I want to give you the same, uh, the same grace there. Uh, you heard it mentioned that we're at the end of our, our Hold Us Together series. And we're talking marriage today. And there's probably not a topic that is harder to cover in 35 or 40 minutes than marriage. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to try to, or I'm going to try rather, to provide some practical tips and helps for a better marriage. And I hope you come away with some of that. Uh, But what I want to do in the 40 minutes or so that we have is really lay a foundation for healthy biblical marriage, and then we're going to gift you a subscription or an account with Right Now Media. That's a a streaming service of over 20,000 Christian video Bible studies and several on marriage, including a channel that we've especially created for Horizon West Church attenders. And so if you will scan that QR code, um, and you can do it right now, uh, that will take you to a login page where you can create that free account uh, on us. And then you can click on the First Baptist Orlando tab at the top. That will take you to those channels. We have marriage resources. We also have parenting resources that will uh, allow you to kind of take this further than what we can cover uh, just today. Let me know if you uh, know what this picture is. Throw that up behind me, guys. Anybody remember what this was? You're nodding. I think there's some agreement. This was the infamous Miami condo that collapsed in 2021. And I did some research on this uh, this week. There are several theories as to why this building collapsed. One of the ones I found most interesting was the idea that this was a progressive collapse based on faulty construction of the foundation. Meaning that long before this was in our news cycle... This building was eroding from the ground up. And my hunch is that when we see a marriage that is imploding, a marriage that is falling apart, what's happening is that the the beginning of the end started long before. The foundation had been eroded. And so today what I want to do is just lay four cornerstones of biblical marriage that can help you to, to build a solid foundation because here's the reality. All of the marriage advice, ideas, tips in the world can't save a marriage that is eroding because it's built on an unbiblical foundation. Genesis chapter 2, I invite you to turn there in your Bible or on a phone. We'll also throw it up behind me. I want you to hear where marriage came from in the mind of God. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. 
Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, names to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then the writer of Genesis adds this commentary. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. As we dive into these four cornerstones of marriage that we see here in Genesis chapter 2, I want to issue a word of caution. Some of you are going to be tempted today with what I'm going to call restless elbow syndrome, meaning you're going to be tempted to nudge the person next to you frequently and say, the pastor's talking to you. I am not talking to the person next to you. I am talking to both that person and also to you. Because here is the plain reality. If you get nothing else, please get this. You can't fix your spouse. You can't control your spouse. The only thing that you can do is hold up a mirror and say, God, where do I need to change? God, where do I need to seek forgiveness or give it? God, what can I do to make my marriage all that you intend it to be? Let this be a message for you, husband or wife. So four cornerstones of marriage from Genesis chapter 2. Let's dive in. Number one, the first cornerstone we see is the cornerstone of companionship. God says it is not good that the man should be alone. If we were to flip back just one page to Genesis chapter 1, we would see God creating the heavens and the earth. And at the end of each day of creation, God says the same thing. And some of you know what he says. He says it is good. The mountains, the valleys, the rivers, the birds, the bears, all of it is good. And then Genesis chapter 2, God says, it is not good. And the only thing in all of creation that was not good was human isolation and loneliness. One of the reasons that God created this thing we call marriage is to provide companionship for people to not experience life in loneliness and in isolation. Let me make a couple of observations about the way that this went. First, God did not finish creating the world and go, shoot, I left something out. (laughs) What was I thinking making the man without the woman? Like, God didn't make a mistake and then figure out how to make that right. What's happening is that God is trying to put a spotlight on just how not good it is to live in isolation by allowing the writers of Genesis to tell the story in such a way that we have a part where God breaks in and says, hold, hold, hold on, this isn't good. And the one thing that was not good was loneliness. God desires us to experience companionship in life. Secondly, notice that God recognized the man's need before he himself did. Which means if you are single 
and you desire to be married but have not found the right person yet, don't get anxious, don't get restless, don't get manipulative and coercive. Simply ask God who knew your need before you did. 2008, I had moved home from Indiana. I had gone to college up there and I was back in my hometown of Sebring, Florida and I was exactly single and by that I mean not kind of single, not somewhat single, like I was the definition of singleness. At 26 years old, I prayed this prayer. I said, God, I either need a best friend, because all my best friends had moved away, or I need a wife. And my preference, if I'm allowed to have one, is for the latter. I would like to be in a marriage with somebody soon. And so it was not January, not February, March, April, May, June, July, August, or September, but in October, God introduced me to a girl in a purple dress. And as they say, the rest is history. Sometimes we plant seeds of prayer that take time to become the trees from which we eat the fruit. So do not despair. If you are single and desire to be married, God knows perfectly how to make a helper fit for you. He knows perfectly how to provide the companion. And when the time is right, God will either do that or he will do something even greater with your singleness. So that's my first observation on that. The second is this. Uh, oh, I already gave you the second. I got preachy and forgot where I was. Let me share with you the gift of companionship, the gift that God gives us in companionship. And this is so basic, but hear it. The gift is presence. At the end of the day, if you're married, it may not be a great marriage. There may not be a lot right, but there is somebody there all the time. Like for some of you, you're like, too much of all of the time. I remember when Nikki and I were newly married and she said, baby, sometimes I need to miss you. <laughs> Meaning, give me some space, right? Like, that was just the reality. And so, so this gift, though, is the gift of presence. I don't have to wonder at the end of the night who's going to be in my bed. I see that as a great gift. I have somebody who is there with me and there for me. They wake up with me. They're there when I'm making breakfast in the morning. They're a companion for this journey of life, and that is a gift from God. James chapter 1, verse 16, or maybe 17, says that every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, whenever there is something good in your life, it should cause you to lift your eyes up from the gift and be grateful for the giver. Again, in 2008, when I was falling in love with Nikki, I was loving the experience of that, but I was also recognizing in her that God had seen my need and that God had, had gifted me with this in incredible woman named Nikki. It, it bolstered my faith and my love for him. Twelve years later, I still enjoy being around her, and oftentimes she enjoys being around me as well. Let me give you some practical tips. How do you build a marriage of companionship? One way is through regular date nights. Every marriage person you talk to is going to tell you this, so it's nothing new. But I would add to that, make it regular. It doesn't have to be weekly, and it also doesn't have to cost a lot of money. If you have young kids, probably your date night budget is a babysitter. So go somewhere where you're not spending another $100 to eat out every week or every month. You can find creative ways in the various seasons that you're in. 
our kids are old enough now that there are times that Nikki and I say, hey kids, put yourselves to bed because we're going to have a date night at home and we're closing the bedroom door. Don't come back there. Um, and so that, that's just one of the creative ways we find to have regular, this is what it's about. It's about regular face-to-face time without distractions, without rush and hurry. Continue dating. In, in the craziest thing in the world that, that marriages, which are built on two people who dated each other, get married and go, well, I'm done doing that now. No, you're not. You're just getting started. Continue to date your spouse. Here's another practical tip. Find a hobby that you enjoy doing together. Go to the gym together. Um, there are people, I'm told, in various parts of the planet that do puzzles. And it's weird to me, but if that's you and you enjoy doing that, do a puzzle together. Um, Nikki and I, from time to time, will play the Wii together. And, and it's great because it's like interactive and we're both kind of competitive. And so we play Wii tennis. She's way better than me. I can't figure out why, but I can't beat her. And we, we enjoy it and we laugh together and we have fun spending time face-to-face together building a marriage of companionship. Here's the second cornerstone. Cooperation. Genesis 2.18, I will make a helper fit for him. Let me highlight two aspects to this verse. Number one, marriage should be a helpful endeavor, okay? It it should help you to uh, not only enjoy life more, but to be better at it. Guys, your wife is not responsible for raising you. If the job wasn't done when you got married, find someone, I'm going to refer to you an older man who is good at being married and loves God and figure out how to be the man you need to be for your wife. It's not her job. Ladies, it's not your husband's job to wait on you hand and foot. They do, they are there to serve you. That is part of God's design for marriage, but don't take advantage of it. Make it a a mutual serving and loving each other. Uh, One of our uh, gentlemen this morning said, I make it my job to outserve my wife, and he added this, and without keeping score. So, so serve one another. Be companions and cooperative to one another. Here's the second observation. Not only should marriage be a helpful endeavor, but marriage partners should be a good fit for each other. God, God is totally like so smart and genius in this because what he does is he hardwires us to be attracted to people who are unlike us. You've heard the expression, opposites attract. And here's why. You don't need somebody that's exactly like you. You need someone who's different. Nikki and I came across a book several years ago, and the cover was all that I read of the book, and it changed my life. The title of the book was, I'm not crazy, I'm just not you. It's like, wow. I'm not perfect? I, I'm, I, this is mine, but I'm like... So my wife's differences, the way her brain works, the things she's good at with her hands, the way she thinks about finances and and, and raising children, the differences cooperate together to make us better than we would be alone. Now here's the danger. Over time, if you're not careful, those differences will also be the things that drive you absolutely nuts. Why in the world would he leave the toothpaste in that condition at the end of the night. Is he five years old? Like this is, like the differences, the way we think about parenting, but we need those differences. Here's the bigger principle. I want you to know that God created marriage for a purpose that is bigger than marriage. 
one of the great resources we came across a few years back was Francis Chan's book, You and Me Forever, in which he highlights the idea that marriage exists for eternal purposes, even though marriage itself is not eternal. In other words, our, our cooperation together should sharpen each other so that when we stand before Jesus without our spouse there, we are more ready to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Your marriage exists not only to do good in you, but to do good through you to the world. By the way, that resource, You and Me Forever, is one of the video series that we've made available on that channel on Right Now Media. I encourage you to spend some time with it. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 says it this way, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now here's unfortunately what happens. A lot of our marriages shift out of the cooperative mode and get into competitive mode. And it is one thing to be competitive at Wii Tennis. It's a very different thing to live competitively against each other. Who's making more money? Who's doing more around the house? Who's getting more accolades from the outside world? When marriages cease to be cooperative and become competitive, it begins to erode that foundation on which healthy marriages are built. Did you know that it is not until after the fall that we see marriage become a competition sport where the man and the woman are jockeying for position? In Genesis 1, before the fall of mankind, God gives the man and woman together what's called the creation or cultural mandate to steward the earth. He doesn't give it to the man and say, and man, make sure you're leading your your wife. He doesn't give it to the woman and say, make sure you're initiating. He says, man and woman, husband and wife, be fruitful, multiply. In other words, together fill the earth, subdue it, have co-dominion together. Somebody's going to ask the question, but isn't the husband the head of the home? And here's how I would answer that. If you view headship as authoritarian dominance, then absolutely not. If, however, you view headship as accountability to lovingly lead your spouse and family, then I would answer yes. Here's what I believe headship is. Headship means that my neck sticks out a little further than anybody else in my family's. Doesn't mean I run everything. Doesn't mean I control everything. Doesn't mean I make every decision. Everyone in my home and in my family should be empowered to utilize the gifts of God to the fullest, but I'm accountable for the culture and condition of my home. So if my wife makes more money and is better at finances, that doesn't disrupt God's design. I just can't come behind that and go, well, God, it's not my fault. She made a mess of things. This is the problem that Adam got himself into when it says that Eve took the fruit and then gave some to her husband who was what? With her and did nothing. Men, we have a job to lovingly lead and steward our families, but we primarily do that by serving them, by praying for them. The the idea that, that God designed men to be in control is not what we see in God's original design of Genesis chapter one and two. Quite to the contrast of that, what we see in Ephesians 5.22, where Paul is going to embark on, a, on an in-depth teaching on what Christian marriage should look like, he begins it with these words, Ephesians 5.22, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
You go, how is that possible? It's possible when we all take the attitude that I shared earlier that someone said, my job is to outserve my wife and she's trying to outserve me. Mutual submission. The, the, the church submits to Jesus as its head, right? And Paul says, women, wives. But then he says, and husbands, submit your lives to your wife the way that Jesus laid down his life on a cross. Guys, our job is to lovingly lead our wives, even giving our lives for them, putting them on the line. That's what God's design for marriage looks like. The gift within all of this is the gift of partnership. I was talking with a college student years back. Nikki and I were overseeing the college ministry at First Orlando. And this young guy, Jonathan, um, he was very single. He was probably more single than I was in 2008. And uh, I said, well, man, what are you looking for? Like, let's unpack this together. What do, you, what do you want? And when he got about seven characteristics deep and had only mentioned body parts, I was concerned. I'll just be really transparent with you. That concerned me. Because at the end of the day, it's not going to really matter, ladies, how, how good-looking or charming he was. It's not going to matter, guys, what her body looked like. You're going to care who's doing the dishes. That's, that's what matters in marriage, right? And we get so hung up on these physical attributes or even personality things that over time do not prove to be the, the right foundation on which to build. We need something different. We need something better. Here's some free advice. If you would not go into business with them, don't marry them. They can't handle finances. They make terrible decisions. But they're just so darn cute. No. No. Now, if you're in a marriage, you don't get to say, well, I married the wrong person. Because here's the thing. Once you married them, they became God's will for your life. We'll get into that a little bit more in a moment. But if you are single in the room or watching online, don't marry somebody that wouldn't make a good partner because marriage at the end of the day is a partnership. Let me give you some practical tips that we've discovered and, and practiced for building a cooperative marriage. First, schedule one hour each week to discuss the calendar and the budget. Simple, but if you don't plan it, it doesn't happen. And then you get to Tuesday evening and I say to my wife, you want me to do what in the morning? I, I, have, a, I have work. What, wh why wasn't this or I say to her on Thursday at 5 o'clock, hey, I know I forgot to tell you this, but I have a three-hour thing tonight that I'm not going to be home. And it's like nothing's more frustrating than that failure to communicate. Calendar and budget. How are we spending our time this week? How are we spending our money this week? Move together on that. It's not going to be perfect, but having the conversation will take care of the lion's share of the issues that come in that sever partnership just by talking and being intentional in that way. You can build cooperation by asking the simple question, what can I do to help you have more margin this week? Guys, you'd be blown away what that question and then following through on it could do for your wife. <laughs> Guys, our wives are drowning. COVID studies, post-COVID studies have revealed that the toll and the strain on moms is greater than on any other demographic of people that exist in the world. Moms had to, in some cases, cases manage full-time jobs, full-time parenting, and schmucks of husbands, you know, as, as it goes. And, and, and they're, they're stressed. Guys, just come and go, hey, 
How can I serve you this week? How can I take something off your plate? And the beauty of it, when it's working right, is that women who are served well desire to serve well. Paul said, when you love your wife, husbands, you're loving yourself. You're investing in somebody whose good matters because the better she is, the better you will be, and vice versa. Cooperation, partnership. And then finally, I encourage you, maybe as we come up on a, a new year, start this new year, 2023, with a overnight or at least a full day of planning and talking about your goals and your dreams for the year. We sometimes just kind of stumble into really big stuff and all of a sudden it's like, hey love, I need a new job, I'm, I'm depressed. And you're like, whoa, where, where, where did this come from? Set aside that time, we hired a babysitter for the daytime. It was really weird. She was like, you don't mean this evening? No, no, no. Like in the morning, come to the house we went to Panera. We spent like six hours in a little booth and we dreamed what 2022 would look like. Now, can I be honest with you? It didn't look anything like we thought. <laughs> like it was, and that's just the way life works. But the beauty of it is we were learning to build a cooperative marriage, a partnership together. Now I'm going to bring us to the dividing line. We're halfway through. I'm going to go as quickly as I can, but these are important uh, topics. This of the four cornerstones we're going to talk about next, this is the dividing line between what can be true of any other relationship. Because if you're not experiencing some level of companionship and cooperation in other places, there's an issue with you. Like you should have friendships and you should have coworkers and neighbors where those things are true. But now we come to what divides marriage from all other relationships, and it's this third cornerstone it is covenant. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man will leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Marriage is the only relationship that exists in the world that is built on this idea of covenant. And I need you to know that this is a very different thing than a contract. Our, our culture's best idea at, at a healthy marriage is, is contract. It's better than nothing, right? Like we both agree to do something. But the problem with contracts, the reason they fall short of a covenant marriage is a contract says, I'll do my part as long as you do your part. I am tempted to not pay my phone bill this month because the cell service is not good. I'm tired of it. Anybody else? Like, where do we live? Come on. But it's a contract. I only have to do my part, assuming that they continue to do their part. Covenant is different. Covenant says, I do my part regardless of what the other party does because my part was a promise not just to the other person, but to God. Covenant involves God at the center, and so I don't walk away easily. I don't break relationship quickly. I understand that I'm in a covenant. A good picture of this, and I did not create this, but I, I found this. A good picture of covenant would be a triangle in which the husband and wife are on either side and God is at the top. And what you know to be true of a triangle is as you move uh, upward toward the, the, the tip of that triangle, the two sides are also moving together. Meaning, husbands, wives, as you move closer to God in your relationship and walk with him, you're moving closer to your spouse. And, and hopefully they're doing the same, and that's what an ideal covenant looks like. It involves more than simply two people. I would add that a covenant marriage, a Christian covenant marriage, needs to be inaugurated by a marriage ceremony. It doesn't have to mean X amount of people or, or be a big event. 
but it needs to be a ceremony in which a Christian minister is, is basically giving blessing over the covenant that's being established. We live in an age where people are scared to death of commitment, and so they're, they're choosing not to do it. And as believers, as followers of Jesus, I want to encourage us, the covenant and the covenant ceremony still matters. It's the accountability that you're going to need for some of the tougher things that you're going to face. That you recall speaking words of affirmation, speaking words of covenant before God and before witnesses. You're going to need that when things get tough. Now it should be apparent as we talk about what a covenant is that this excludes the idea of any two people living together with marital benefits but without having entered a covenant marriage. See, we get dinged for our exclusive views on marriage and sexuality, but it's actually way more so than anybody gives us credit for. (laughs) Because we only believe there's one sexual union that is blessed and ordained by God, and it is the union of a husband and wife in covenant marriage. We like to pick and choose groups and go, well, they're really, really, and no, no, no. Anyone who is engaged in a sexual relationship without entering biblical covenant is outside of the will of God. Now, that doesn't mean you've, you've ruined everything. It doesn't mean God is, is angry at you. But what it means is the biblical mandate is covenant marriage and then sexuality. We're going to unpack this and come back to it more in a moment. We, we titled the series, Hold Us Together. And here's just the plain reality. Most love relationships, most romantic relationships in our world are held together by feelings. Nothing more than feelings, right? Like, and here's the problem. When the feelings end, the marriage is over because that was what the foundation was. People go, well, I'm just not happy anymore. Or, I found somebody else that makes me happier. Covenant rejects that idea because it says feelings were never the basis for this marriage anyway. It was a promise that I made to God. It was a covenant that we entered together. The gift within this idea of covenant, the gift is permanence. I don't have to worry, and I think this is a beautiful thing, I don't have to worry if a bad fight or a bad day or even a bad season will destroy my marriage because both my wife and I stood across from each other and covenanted before God that we would stay through thick and thin. And I think that's what you long for. I know we all, you know, we we bristle at responsibility, accountability. I don't like doing things I don't want to do. But the accountability is simply saying, What you want most, which is a lifelong, lasting love relationship with another person, covenant is going to hold you to. Here's how C.S. Lewis said it about 60 years ago. He said, The promise made when I am in love and because I am in love to be true to the beloved as long as I live commits me to being true even if I cease to be in love. A promise must be about things that I can do, about actions. No one can promise to go on feeling in a certain way. He might as well promise to never have had a headache or to always feel hungry. You cannot commit to feelings. They'll come and go. But you can commit to a promise. You can commit to the covenant that you made. Now, where we'll get pushback from the outside culture is that the idea of covenant is rigid and outdated. It's like, yeah, that worked at one point, but now we're liberated To love who we want to love. Do what we want to do. And I would push back, and I'm again borrowing from C.S. Lewis on this topic, and I would say that even within the culture, movies, books, and music, it's intrinsic to love to pledge forever. In other words, 
even people that don't understand or reject the idea of covenant go, but man, I'd love somebody to tell me that they always want to be with me. And I can prove this. Just listen to these songs. And feel free to sing along if you know it. Y'all good? You enjoying it? Here's another one. You can get out your phones at this point if you got them. Hold them up. This is for the young kids in the room. Listen. You hear it forever. This I don't actually understand what they're saying, but I'm told that this is a forever song. Thank you, Socrates. All right, and on this last one, I am going to call for all of us to join together in song. Come on. Turn my mic off. I'm going to sing. We will always love you. You see it. You hear it, right? It's there. It's there, not because they're, because in culture, in our, the way that we're wired, we go, love means permanence. Love means I pledge forever. Our fairy tales all end the same way, and they lived happily ever after. We desire that. Covenant says, I'm going to hold you to that great desire and that ideal in covenant marriage. Now, let me address the elephant in the room. Some of you have already started to think on this. What do we do with divorce, right? Because we're talking about covenant and it's forever and it's permanent. The scripture gives two clear examples of when a marriage is permitted to be dissolved. And, and the first is Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. He, he answers the question, can we divorce for any and every reason? He says, no, only for the reason of sexual immorality. That Greek word is actually the word pornea, Okay. So in other words, when a partner in the spouse relationship is committed to a covenant-type relationship with someone else, they have irreparably severed the, the marriage relationship, you are permitted to leave. I would argue that's still not the automatic response, but it is allowed. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul comes behind that and gives another clause or another reason, and he says if you're married to an unbelieving spouse— somebody who is not a follower of Jesus, and they want to leave, let them leave. You're no longer obligated to that marriage. Now, here's where it gets challenging, and I'm going to step out on a little bit of thinner ice, and then I'm going to jump back on thick ice. You tracking with me on that? Okay. So here's the thin ice. Jesus said there's only one exception, and that's sexual immorality. Paul came behind and said there's a second, and that's if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave. If there's one and then there's two, is it possible that there is a third? In other words, is it possible that these are principles the Bible is giving us rather than a new legalism? For instance, nowhere in the New Testament or anywhere in the Bible does it say if your spouse is physically beating you, you can, you can leave. But I would argue that you absolutely can and that you should, especially if there are children in the home, but not only in that instance. 
The Bible doesn't say it. And if we take a legalistic view, we're going to have people uh, required biblically to stay in all kinds of toxic and, and perhaps dangerous situations. I would take a different approach, and it's the approach Richard Foster gives us in a book called Money, Sex, and Power. Imagine that you go to the doctor and you say, hey doctor, there is a splinter in my arm and therefore I need you to amputate my arm. Your doctor will say to you, we're not amputating the arm. Imagine you say, well doctor, not only is there a splinter, but my my arm is broken and it's completely useless. I haven't been able to do anything with it for two months. I need you to cut my arm off. Your doctor will still push back and say, we're not cutting the arm off. Then imagine you say, not just a splinter and not just a break, but I went to another doctor and they said I have a tumor in my arm, so doctor, take my arm. The doctor will still say, we're not amputating until we have done everything possible to eradicate the problem while still preserving the body part. However, there are instances in which the marriage is so toxic, abusive, unhealthy, that it requires an amputation or a divorce in order to save the person. That, I believe, is biblical. That's somewhat the thin ice. Let me jump back on the thick ice. Everywhere in Scripture, including Jesus and Paul, the counsel of Scripture is do everything you can to preserve the marriage union. And I think if we just took that approach, we would see divorce go from about 40 to 50% of marriages down to like 3 to 5%. Because most divorces, I believe, are for reasons that could have been made right if both people would have committed to the process. I don't, I don't say that in judgment. I'm just saying as we take that approach, we got to understand it's as important as losing your arm. You don't want to do it lightly. Having had friends and, and family members now walk through divorce, it is like a death. And I want to spare you from that if I at all can. So how do we get there? How do we build or rebuild a marriage that's marked by covenant? Let me give you just a couple. We, we are quick to ask for forgiveness and even quicker to give it. We find a good Christian marriage counselor and we commit to the process. Nikki and I have done this. I'll share a little more about it in a moment. There is no shame in seeing a counselor. There is a great reward and benefit to finding a good one and seeing transformation in your marriage. And maybe for some of you, it's a renewal of your vows. Maybe you got married under kind of sketchy, you know, conditions and you're like, man, I don't know what we were thinking and we were young or we were this or that. Well, just go ahead then and renew your vows, renew the covenant that you made and build a covenant marriage and a covenant relationship. Let me give you a word of hope before we move on from this cornerstone. I have literally seen, with my own eyes, I have seen marriages that are dead and buried come back to life. I have seen it. Things that you would go, man, there's no way you can get past this. And yet, with two people committed to the covenant they were in, they got through it. And if you have endured a divorce, God is not done with you. You are not damaged. You are not irreparably outside of God's will. God says in his word, Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to your purpose. What I will say to you is before you enter the next covenant marriage, or if you have already done so, please build it on these cornerstones and these foundations. Final cornerstone, 
And for the sake of time, we're going to go a little bit even quicker. If you have children in the room, um, at this point, that's on you because I've warned you three times to get them out of the room. The fourth cornerstone of a healthy marriage, connection. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, to state the obvious, connection between people is for things outside of the marriage. There's obviously connections that you make with coworkers and friends, that kind of thing. And connection in a marriage starts long before the two people say, I do. However, the type of connection that Genesis 2.25 is talking about, this naked and unashamed connection, is only for those who have entered a covenant marriage. In fact, did you know that the very first command that God ever gave to the man and the woman was to have sex? And, and which is mind-boggling to me. That, that literally when, when he created the man and the woman and brought them together in marriage, his first words are, be fruitful and multiply. Now, we're not going to have a class. I think you understand the implications. God is saying marital sex is a good thing. In fact, it's the first thing I'm going to tell you to do. And in a way that only God could design, God says, I'm going to get what I want out of this, which is a world full of people who have been reproduced to the glory of God, who I get to lavish my love and mercy on. And you're going to get what you want, which is a really enjoyable experience of physical and emotional pleasure with somebody who you're in a marriage relationship with. You think, man, what could possibly go wrong? And yet we fast forward several thousand years after the fall of mankind and we realize that almost nothing has been more tainted, more corrupted, more destroyed than this gift that God gave us called sex. And so we now live in a world that has sexual abuse and sexual assault, sexually transmitted diseases, human trafficking. Can I tell you that all of that is because mankind myself and all of us included, say, God, we want what we want, but we're going to kind of shut you out of the deal. (laughs) We're going to focus on the pleasure part, and that is a part of God's goodness in the gift of sex, but to the exclusion of glorifying you by using it for the purpose for which you created it. And so we have all of this, this evil, this Pandora's box that has been opened. Can I add to that that the sexual revolution of my parents and some of you, your grandparents' generation, had a grandchild called the Me Too movement. When when a generation said, we're going to throw off the constraints of sex and we're going to liberate people to enjoy their bodies together, it took only about four decades for people to go, hey, I've been assaulted, I've been abused, I've been taken advantage of. Yes, because we chose to do it our way instead of God's. Sex is not a constraint, it is a gift that God has given for a husband and wife in covenant marriage. In marriage, sex is redeemed for God's glory and in fulfillment of his original purpose. Marriage is the one place where we can experience the beauty of being naked and unashamed. And also, I need you to know that this experience goes beyond physical sex. To be naked, I believe, implies also to be fully vulnerable and transparent with another person who's not going to run out the door when they get to know you. A person who's going to stay. A person who's going to love you, warts and all. You cannot be fully loved without being fully known. Which is terrifying, isn't it? (laughs) But it's part of the deal. To be fully loved, you must be fully known. Wives, when you hide your body from your husband because it's not the way that it used to be, 
That's breaking apart of what God designed for marriage. Guys, when you go outside of the marriage to find something, whether it be a person or something online, to kind of give you that pleasure rush because your wife isn't enough for you or whatever you think, you're defiling God's design for marriage. To be naked and unashamed, both in sex and also in emotional and spiritual ways, is the good gift that God has given us. C.S. Lewis said this, and this will take some thinking on. He said, hell is the only place outside of heaven where one can be safe from the dangers of love. In heaven, we're safe because there is no danger in love. And in hell, we're safe because we don't risk love. It's the only place outside of heaven where we can be safe from the dangers, the vulnerabilities of love. Now, I want you to know that Nikki and I have a great amount of empathy and compassion for marriages that are broken in the area of connection, both sexually, spiritually, emotionally, the hardest conversations that we've ever had in counseling couples and the hardest ones we've been on the other side of come to this issue of connection. Somebody says, it's just not working. I, I just don't know this person. I don't trust this person. This person has, has broken the bond that we covenanted to. Nikki and I sat on our couch several years ago with a young couple as, as the wife in, in, in grief and brokenness just berated her husband. And we saw him withering on the vine. I said, I need you to stop. <laughs> you got to stop. The contempt, the, the brokenness. And yet that marriage is still together today and is thriving. It came back from the brink. So, so that can happen. Nikki and I knew in 2016 that, that we had some really uh, big challenges in our marriage. A lot of that came to my own sin and brokenness that was unaddressed and unaccountable. And as that began to surface, it created incredible brokenness in our area of connection. We knew that we were committed to the marriage, but we also knew that we needed help from somebody outside of the marriage. And that's why I want to encourage you, don't shy away from getting that help. Maybe it's a Christian counselor, maybe it's another couple in this church, maybe it's Celebrate Recovery, but something that can help you to re-engage and connect with your spouse in marriage. So let me do this as we prepare to close. I want to give you some practical ways that you can begin to again connect with your spouse in marriage. First, I want to encourage you to attend a marriage retreat or marriage seminar together at least once a year. Be around other couples that are also trying to have healthier, better marriages. Go, go to somebody that has experience in helping marriages to thrive and commit to that process. I mentioned the counselor. I don't need to say that again. Let me give you one more. Couch time. Uh, a little bit older couple than us when we were first married said, hey, 15 minutes, a few times a week, just sit on the couch together and talk for 15 minutes. For some of you, what that would look like if that happened now is you just look at the person and be like, I can't stand you. I don't know why we're sitting here, right? And that's just where you're at. That's okay. What happened over time for Nikki and I is that, that ice started to thaw a little bit. And we'd say like, how was your day? <laughs> it's fine. How was yours? You know, and then we, we built on that. And then it got to the point where 15 minutes wasn't enough. We were there for 30 or 40 or 50 minutes on our couch in the living room. That's kind of evolved now. It's our back patio. We close the doors because our kids drive us nuts and we're on the, on the outside of the house. I'm mostly kidding. And we have couch time over a cup of coffee in the morning. It doesn't matter where it is, but have a place where you regularly connect with your spouse. And husbands, I want to challenge you with something that's not in my notes, but I think will hit you between the eyes. Connect with your wife even when sex isn't on the other side of it. 
like listen to her, even if at the end of that 15, 20, 30 minutes, you just go to bed, like still put in the time, serve her and love her in ways that she needs. Well, I could go on and I can't because of time. So here's how we're going to wrap up today. I want to pray for you and especially I want to pray for those of you that are in marriages that are struggling. I know you're out there. It's part of the reason we did this series and Nikki and I have been there. And it is hard. There is nothing harder than going home to your spouse and not being safe, not feeling safe, not feeling loved, not having that partnership. I want to pray for you. So I'm going to ask everybody just to close your eyes where you're at. And if you are in a place, could be you're here with your spouse, could be you're here without them, it doesn't matter. If you're in a place where you need prayer, you've come to the place of going, man, I don't know how to fix this thing. God has to do it. The good news is God is in the business of resurrection. And I want to pray for you. If you're in that kind of place with everybody's eyes closed and you would like prayer for your marriage, just slip your hand up kind of quietly. I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. I see a few going up. Give another second for any others. All right, you can slip that back down. I want to pray for you. Father, I thank you for the good gift of marriage. God, I thank you for the way that it has sanctified me, the way it's made me more like you. God, I also thank you for the joys of marriage, the benefits, the, the fun, the laughter, the time together. But God, I'm aware that there are some in the room and maybe some watching online that their marriage is not that. They don't see the good. They don't see the gift. They see hardship and struggle and pain and wounding. And God, I just pray that in a way that only you can do, that you would redeem the marriages of those in the room and those watching online who are in need. God, we want to glorify you. We want to honor you. We want our marriages to be a picture of the great love relationship between Christ and the church. May people see in our marriages the good news of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service times, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.